Hey there, welcome to The Tent. I'm your host, Scott Fellman, and it's time for another foray into the world of aquariums from our slightly different perspective. You know, as we're entering into the, uh, the final phases of uh, our office brackish water aquarium here, um, which has been up and running for over a year and a half now, it's kind of time to really reflect on the lessons we've learned and the, the joys of the journey. And I got to tell you, this decision to take this tank down has been very difficult as I've been very public about, oh, I don't really want to take it down, but I do. I want to keep showing you guys some new looks and it's important to do that. Um, had this been, uh, you know, a personal aquarium, I'd probably keep it running indefinitely and I'm probably going to do another version of it. But I learned a lot. I really love this tank. Um, and it was really uh, interesting to and fun to play with. And over the operational lifetime of this tank, I've noticed some interesting things about the way it runs and how it's similar to some of the Blackwater systems that we're all, you know, pretty familiar with by now, I hope. Like our conventional, <laughs> shit, that's funny to say that, isn't it? Our conventional Blackwater botanical style aquariums, the brackish system sort of embraces some of the same use of decomposing leaves, wood, and botanicals, with the added variables of a rich sediment-centric substrate and the dynamics of specific gravity to contend with. Interestingly, however, this type of system runs much like the Blackwater botanical style systems that we're used to, with the exception that it is far more nutrient rich than most of these Blackwater tanks. The dynamics of decomposition and the ephemeral nature of leaves and such in the water are analogous in many respects as well. Now, fungi and bacteria in brackish and saltwater mangrove ecosystems help facilitate the decomposition of mangrove material, just like they do in their pure freshwater counterparts. And interestingly, in scientific surveys, it's been determined that bacterial counts are generally higher on the attached mangrove leaves than they are on the freshly fallen leaf litter. And that's kind of interesting because ecologists feel that attached undamaged mangrove leaves don't relieve much tannin, which as we know, might have some antibacterial properties. However, it's also been found that materials like human humic acid, which are you know pretty abundant in mangroves, uh, simulate phytoplankton growth there. So there's this in interesting, like, contradictory kind of thing going on, right? Now, the leaves of mangroves, as they break down, do become subject to both the leaching of the compounds in their tissues, just like freshwater leaves, as well as microbial breakdown. Uh, compounds like potassium and carbohydrate are commonly leached quickly, followed by tannins. Fungi are sort of the first responders to leaf drop in mangrove communities, followed by bacteria, which serve to break down the leaves further. So in summary, you have a very active microbial community in a brackish water habitat and in an aquarium that embraces that. And yeah, the water in a brackish system configured in this manner is decidedly tinted, largely a function of those mangrove branches and roots, and of course leaves, which as they break down, give off a significant amount of color-producing tannins from their tissues. It's hardly a secret that mangrove wood leaves and bark are loaded with these tannins. In fact, Red mangrove bark is kind of one of my favorite secret weapons for producing this incredibly deep tint in all sorts of aquariums. That's why I recommend it to someone that says, I really want a dark tint. Now, getting back to the management of a, of a botanical-style brackish aquarium, it's really surprisingly similar to that of a typical blackwater aquarium, or, or any other style botanical aquarium for that matter. The biggest difference is, of course, the salt, and perhaps a greater interest, as above in, mentioned, in a deep, very rich substrate. Now, one parameter I've changed since my system began is I did increase the specific gravity from its original target was 1.004, which is just barely on the low end of brackish, to 1.010, which is probably on the higher end of brackish. And it was done because it was sort of a sweet spot that, that many of the fishes which I you know was interested in, like gobies and 
chromides and rainbow fishes and mollies and stuff seem to fare pretty well at that slightly higher specific gravity. Indeed, the natural habitat information I got from the people who provided some of these fishes was giving me that kind of information, um, which led me to make the decision to increase the, the specific gravity. Now, I've also made it no secret about the desire at some future point to do a brackish system where I slowly push things all the way up to like, I don't know, 1.021, which is on the low end of natural seawater specific gravity, and maybe ultimately incorporate corals and, you know, macroalgae into display along with some marine fishes. And of course, if I do execute that sort of a evolution or creep to the higher specific gravity, it'll be made over a very long period of time, maybe like close to a year, so that it gives... Um, the resonant fish's time to adapt to full-strength marine water very slowly. Yeah, so you're playing with salt in a brackish water aquarium. One, one word of advice, do yourself a favor and splurge on a digital refractometer. Not a swing-arm hydrometer that breaks easily and goes off calibration if you just look at it wrong. Not a conventional refractometer which forces you to read between these little tiny lines to obtain an accurate reading. No, 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 no. Actually splurge on a good piece of gear. Spend over 100 US dollars and get a real deal name brand piece of lab quality equipment that'll give you precise readings with a minimum of hassle and it'll last for years. Do it, you won't regret it at all. I'm telling you, if you're gonna play with salt, you're gonna be so much happier using a digital refractometer where you literally, once it's calibrated, you put a couple of drops of water in, into it and it gives you a precise specific gravity reading. It saves so much time, so much effort, and it's easier on the eyes. Now. Sure, managing a system that floats between two realms, i.e. freshwater and marine, seems like a bit of a balancing act, and I know because it is. However, it's not difficult. You simply have to apply the lessons that you've learned playing with all this crazy botanical-style stuff we've talked about, you know, all the time here. Excuse me. Now, sure, you might kill stuff, simply because you might not be used to managing a higher-nutrient brackish water system. It's a lot going on. You have a number of variables ranging from the specific gravity to the bio load to take into consideration. Your skills are going to be challenged, but the lessons learned in the Blackwater botanical style aquariums that we're more familiar with will provide you with this huge experience base that will assist you in navigating the tinted, you know, brackish water botanical style aquarium. Now, this is a different type of approach to brackish water aquariums. However, it's likely not groundbreaking in that it's never, ever been done like this before. I just don't think it's ever been embraced like this before. Met on, met, you know, head on for what it is, what it can be instead of how we wanted to make it. You know, bright sand, crystal clear water, a few rocks and shells. Nature edited to our aesthetic standards. Rather, it's an evolution, a step forward out of the artificially induced restraints of this is how it's always been done. And then another exploration into the natural environment and what it's really like and fostering understanding, embracing and appreciating its aesthetics, its functionality, and its richness. And I'm proud to have pushed this type of approach, even prouder that some of you have been inspired to try it as well. Figuring out how to bring this stuff into our aquariums, that sort of thing, that's been really exciting to me. What really sets our approach apart, besides the simple aesthetics of it all, is its function, and I keep going back to function. It's a byproduct of us going more natural and modeling our aquarium after the actual habitats themselves. Now, the bottom of this type of habitat is covered with a thin layer of mangrove leaf litter, typically. And, of course, that's part of the attraction here. Uh, This will not only provide an aesthetically interesting substrate, it'll offer functional benefits as well, imparting minerals, trace elements, and organic acids into the water. Mangrove leaf litter, like its freshwater counterpart, is the literal base for developing our brackish water aquarium food chain, from which those microbial, fungal, and crustacean uh, populations will benefit. 
And of course, these leaves will impart the tannins into the water just like any other leaves will, as I mentioned before. And you can play with many different types of substrate materials, ranging from sand to mud and everything in between. The richer, the better, as far as I'm concerned. Um, we could do a whole talk on just that, and perhaps we will at some point. And of course, you know, no brackish water aquarium is complete without brackish water fishes. <clears throat> and traditionally, that's been a bit of a challenge in terms of finding some different fishes than we previously associated with brackish aquariums. I'll be honest with you, I think it's going to continue to be a bit of a challenge. Simply because some of the fishes that we want are still sort of elusive in the hobby. Collectors haven't figured out commercial potential for them. Some of these fishes can be bred in captivity and have not been. Some have special dietary needs or, you know, are uh, carnivores and so forth that maybe we don't want to mess with. New brackish water fishes will become more readily available when the market demand is there. In the meantime, we can focus on some of the cool fishes from these habitats which are currently available to us. And again, I'm not going to really get into that for the purpose of this article because there's a lot and it probably makes the basis of, a, of another you know, podcast and article and blog or whatever. We'll get to it again. However, one of the things I found is that you need to kind of go beyond what the hobby articles say and look into the actual information from scientific sources about the types of habitats that our target fishes actually come from. There's still a surprisingly large amount of misinformation out there concerning fishes thought long to be brackish, when the reality is they're often found predominantly in pure freshwater and non-brackish habitats, maybe only isolated populations of, of them you know, being brackish fishes. And that's important because that's something that you want to think about. To force fit a freshwater fish into a brackish environment can be problematic and vice versa. So it's important to find the source that your specific fishes came from, whether it's a breeder or whether it was imported. Um, this information can be obtained if you ask the right questions, and it just takes a little effort. And of course, the real stars of the show, in my humble opinion, are the mangroves themselves. Let's just get back to them for a few minutes. I know we're kind of jumping all over the place, but that's how these summary type things always work for me. Like I get on a tangent, and then I come back to it. So specifically, we're talking about the red mangrove, Rhizophora mangle. Uh, the one that we're going to focus on here and refer to as mangroves for the purpose of this, this podcast. Now, it's hardly what you'd call an aquarium plant. I mean, it's a tree, all right? That being said, it's an amazing tree that certainly has its application for aquariums, specifically brackish aquariums and, you know, marine aquariums as well. But let's, without going into a long, long recap of what they are and how they function, you can Google this stuff and get hundreds of hits with more information than you will ever want. Let's just say that mangroves are a group of trees and shrubs which live in coastal intertidal zones in areas of warm, muddy, and salty conditions that would simply kill most plants. They have these specialized organs which allow them to filter out sodium, absorb atmospheric air through their bark, and generally dominate their habitats because of these and some other remarkable adaptations they've made. There's like a hundred different species, all of which are found between tropical and subtropical latitudes near the equator. Uh, they're just intolerant of cold temperatures. Mangroves put down these extensive, what they're called, prop roots into the mud and silt in which they grow, and they give them the appearance of sort of walking on water. And if you've ever seen mangroves, uh, um, you know, stand in nature, you'll, you'll know what I'm talking about. And these root tangles help them withstand the daily rising and falling tides. They also slow the movement of the water, and they allow settlement, sediment of sediments. Boy, that's a tongue twister. Settlement of sediments. Uh, and they build up the bottom contours of the local ecosystems, whether it's a reef or a, an estuary. This is really, really interesting stuff. And of course, these intricate root systems not only protect the coastlines from erosion, they play host to a huge variety of organisms, from oysters to fungi to bacteria to fishes. And the fishes, of course, use mangrove habitats as a feeding ground, a nursery area, and a place to shelter from predators. 
Okay, you get it, you get it. But how do we use these trees in an aquarium? And wait a minute, Feldman, you're talking about a tree. What the? Yeah. Okay, look, I have no illusions about using live mangrove plants, which are available as what we call propagals. We'll talk about that in a second. To serve as a nutrient export mechanism, first of all, as they do in nature. You've seen this touting over the, in the hobby over years, and it's kind of stupid. I mean, yes, they do remove nutrients from the substrate and potentially even from the water, but they just grow too damn slowly and achieve sizes far beyond anything we could ever hope to accommodate in a home aquarium display, you know, as a full-grown plant to, you know, create large-scale nutrient export. We've played with this idea in saltwater tanks for a decade, and it's really more of a novelty than a legit impactful nutrient export mechanism. Uh, mangroves can and will reach a couple of feet or so in an aquarium, but it's over a number of years, and they may be pruned to some extent to keep them as sort of a manageable size, similar to a bonsai tree in, in some respects, and you can keep them healthy and happy like this almost indefinitely. Now, you've probably figured out by now that I'm a huge fan of mangroves. Well, yeah, I am. Oh, and before you go off on me about their unsuitability for aquariums or some ethical implications for their removal from the wild, let's talk a second about how we acquire them and how they grow. Okay. First, removing a mangrove tree or a seedling from a natural habitat anywhere on the planet is damaging, unethical, and illegal in most areas. And it's essentially idiotic. Just don't do it. That's just beyond stupid. And I'll tell you right now, I don't want anything to do with you if that's what you're into. That's completely wrong. No, no, no. No one should ever consider doing that, period. Rather, we acquire mangroves as propagals, buoyant seedlings which grow through the fruit, and they can produce their own food through photosynthesis, which is interesting. So when these propagals are mature, they fall into the water off the mangrove trees, and they can remain in a dormant state withstanding desiccation for more than a year. They literally float around. If you're in areas like Florida or the Caribbean or even in the South Pacific and Asia, you'll see mangrove propagals floating around in the water often and washing up on beaches. They're really buoyant. They can float until they find a suitable anchorage. And when it's ready to take root, a propagal will change its internal density to float vertically rather than horizontally, which makes it more likely to root in suitable sediment. That's a really interesting phenomenon. And you'll know which side is down when you look at a mangrove. It's pretty obvious. Um, we have photos in our articles, and you can look online and see that. Now, as aquarium people, we start with these free-floating propagals, which are pretty abundant and they're very legal to collect in many places like Florida, where the adult plants are protected, rightfully so, from harvest or pruning. They're often found, as I mentioned, washed up on beaches throughout their, their ranges. And the advantage of propagals is that they can be stored in a moist environment, like a Ziploc bag with a little bit of water and paper towel, and they can be easily shipped and stored that way for an extended period of time. In fact, funny story, I remember going to Florida, this is years ago, and being the geek that I am, I was out with a couple of friends walking through a mangrove area near Key Biscayne in Florida. And uh, of course, you know, it's always fun to grab some stuff, which I did. And I was wearing some board shorts that I don't wear that often because I don't surf in them for some reason. And I would um, pick up, thing, you know, shells or whatever I'd find that was interesting and pop it in my pockets. They had these large pockets. And I found this little tiny mangrove propagal, which I thought was really cool. And I'm like, ah, I'm going to grow that and I put it in, at that time in my reef tank. Uh, in the refugium and sprout it. And so I, you know, grabbed it, I threw it in my pocket. You know, a typical thing, got home uh, from the trip, you know, unloaded everything. Oh, I never, these never got wet, these, these board shorts. So being a dude at that time, a bachelor, I just threw it in the closet. Sorry, confessional. Uh, and uh, I let, you know, I let it sit. And a few months later, I was getting ready to go to the beach and I, you know, pulled out these board shorts. I'm like, I haven't worn these in a while. Put them on and go surfing these. So I pull them out, uh, and I feel something in the pocket. I'm like, oh, what, did I leave a pencil or something in there? And I realize 
Nope, it was that little propagal from Florida. And this is like three, four, five months later. It's just it's literally sitting in my closet. And it was not necessarily dried out, but it was pretty hard. So anyway, stuck the thing in my uh, in my uh, sump in my reef tank that get, that was illuminated. So I figured maybe it'll sprout or whatever. And sure enough, uh, within a month, it started putting down some roots and, and it grew. So they're very, 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 very adaptable and hardy. So again, once you have one of these little propagals, how do you use it? Well, first off, you don't need to root it or plant it in substrate. A lot of people ask me about that. They say, oh, uh, you know, how do I get the thing to stay down? No, 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 you don't do that. You simply need to anchor it in the water column in this vertical position, and it will send down its roots towards the bottom at its own pace. I've typically done this in relatively small containers of water, like a jar, a vase, or a pitcher, before transferring them to the aquarium. And in my brackish water aquarium in the office, what I did is I built that superstructure, and you've seen of sort of dried mangrove root and wood, uh, again, legally collected, and we'll get into that another time, but um, use that to anchor the, the propagals as they put down their own roots, which they did over time. So pretty simple. You'll know that the propagal is ready to transplant when it becomes a seedling with little roots showing up on the bottom and leaves starting to unfurl on top of the propagal. And you can sprout the propagals in all sorts of light conditions, typically even room ambient lighting, as well as in a windowsill, as I've shared with you many times. That'll do the trick fluorescent led or other aquarium rated daylight will accomplish this too of course the part with the leaves needs to be anchored above the water line yeah people ask me that question regularly remember it's not an aquatic plant it's it, it it's a tree <laughs> and like everything we do in the natural style aquarium game you need to be patient you need diligence you need to observe them and that's essential when you keep a mangrove and if you're using an artificial light source, be sure to mount the light well above the container or the aquarium where the mangroves are kept. This not only results in a more natural looking growth form, keeps them going up, it keeps the leaves from literally growing right into the light and frying themselves. I've done that many, many times with high powered LEDs and even metal halides back in the day. So you can want to give them some room to grow. Now, once they're placed in the aquarium, you should anchor them near the water surface. Again, not in the substrate. And um, that's simple, easy to do. The roots will sort of find the bottom themselves. And this will encourage a growth of a strong, almost woody-like, you know, prop root system that these trees are known for. It may take many, many months to achieve touchdown and penetration into the substrate, but they will. And a stronger plant ensues as a result of allowing them to do it themselves rather than us throwing it into the substrate. One little word of advice. They are, you know, very um, adaptable plants, as we've talked about before. But be sure to sprout your mangrove propagal in the same water conditions, i.e. marine, brackish, fresh, whatever, as you'll be keeping them in in perpetuity in your aquarium. They categorically don't adapt well to habitat changes once they've begun to grow. That's where they're a little delicate, not in the you know, handling process, but in the once they start sprouting, you don't want to change their environment radically. <clears throat> Excuse me. Of course, we need to go back to talking about substrates one more time. So keep in mind, they come from these muddy, sedimented, nutrient-rich substrates in nature, so they can handle just about anything. I personally utilized everything from marine biosediments, which are commercially available, to aragonitic sand, to mixes of pond soil, aquatic plant soils, all kinds of stuff. You can even mix in peat and all sorts of substrate enhancement materials to provide sustenance and proper rooting for these very hardy trees. A little online search can yield a lot of information and probably some great tips on substrate mixes for mangroves in the captive environment. There are, there are captive bred or captive propagated, I guess is a better word, seedlings that you can buy legally from farms in Florida and elsewhere in the United States. And, um, you know, that may be an alternative for someone that really wants a tree and doesn't want to go through the whole growth thing. But those are generally adapted to soil and not water. So 
you know, it's a different set of uh, circumstances you have to play with, but they can top, top to a very wet soil as well. So that's another possibility there. But anyway, the beauty of mangroves in general is that they're really hardy and generally adaptable, which bodes well for their care in the aquarium. You really need to do little more than illuminate them, anchor them in a vertical position above the substrate, and mist those leaves on a regular basis. The process helps keep dust, salt buildup, and uh, insects off the leaf tissues. Interestingly, salt is also exuded off the leaves, so you'll, sometimes you'll see salt crystals uh, at the base of the leaves on, the, on the, the plants, and that's kind of interesting to see. Now, now and again, we hear arguments again that keeping a tree in an aquarium is kind of crazy, and I admit a full-grown mangrove tree is virtually impossible to keep in a home aquarium. However, these trees grow incredibly slowly, and they'll reach like a houseplant size after more than a year in captivity. And with frequent pruning, you'll see that they can be maintained in this bonsai state almost indefinitely, as I mentioned above, all the while putting down this extensive, intricate root system that they're so famous for. And that's the part that, quite honestly, I'm most interested in is the root system. Now, one of the cool benefits of mangroves in the aquarium, just as in nature, is that the roots will recruit and foster the growth of microorganisms, fungi, algae, and all that epiphytic life form, which provides a foraging place for fishes and the ability to contribute to the biodiversity and the healthy function of your aquarium's ecology. In addition, the leaf drop, which mangroves are known for, accomplishes the same thing as it does in nature. It encourages that growth of microorganisms and other life forms and tints the water via the exudation of tannins and humic substances. As you might guess, I encourage the fallen leaves to accumulate and decompose in the aquarium. Notice I didn't talk about utilizing mangroves as nutrient export mechanisms in your aquarium. Again, this is because it would take many mangroves, like more than you could ever accommodate over many years, to provide any noticeable export effect on your tank. Rather, we just choose to focus on their unique aesthetics and their ability to foster the growth of other beneficial life forms in the aquarium. Now, sure, I can go on and on and on and on about mangroves and probably repeat the same thing as I've already done, but I hope that this admittedly superficial review will at least encourage you to research more about these remarkable trees and try them yourself. Look, in summary, uh, a newer, more evolved interpretation of the brackish aquariums is both fascinating and it's necessary to push this hobby a little bit farther forward, I think. Traditionally in the aquarium hobby, when you've mentioned you're thinking of trying a mangrove aquarium, it's provoked a little more than a raised eyebrow or maybe a feigned level of interest from your fellow fish geeks. And I can see why. Although aquarists have been playing with brackish tanks for decades, in my opinion, what's been missing is a focus on the actual habitat that we're interested in and how it functions. Functional, yeah. Just like what the hobby was doing in Blackwater for years, I think we've been collectively focusing on the wrong part of the equation for a long time. Just, you know, salt and some basic aesthetics. And quite honestly, the hobby knowledge base on, base on wild brackish water habitats and how dynamic, interesting, and yeah, awesome looking they are has been really lacking. Brackish water aquariums are sort of a middle ground that for decades in the hobby has been well-traveled, yet widely misunderstood. I played with brackish water for almost two decades in between reef keeping and blackwater stuff and researching both the hobby work that's been done and struggling to read through scientific papers out there on the wild habitats. And I've sort of made this conclusion that it's simply been an afterthought at best for aquarists. Although there's a good amount of information on brackish water habitats, you know, from which the fishes come from, with, you know, we've detailed or sort of, excuse me, sort of distilled, really, brackish water aquarium aesthetics down to white aragonitic sand, a few rocks, and maybe some hardy plants. And it's been mired in that aesthetic hell for decades. It's time to change all that. Time to push forward. I'd like to think that our small efforts at sharing a different sort of approach to brackish water has been inspirational and informative to some of you. Of course, I have no illusions about this being the best way to do brackish. This approach is more challenging, more demanding, and more dynamic than we've historically taken when working with this niche. 
However, I think that this more evolved, functionally aesthetic approach is a better way for those who are up to the challenge and are hungry to try something new. So as I say, you know, big hearty sayonara to my current brackish water aquarium, I think we're saying hello to a potentially new and really exciting era in the history of this unique specialty. So to all of you out there, stay excited, stay inspired, stay experimental, stay diligent, stay bold, and always stay wet. Until next time, thanks for spending part of your day with me. This is Scott Feldman. I look forward to seeing you on the next installment of The Tint.